Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the CMYK Talks podcast. My name is Seth. It is um, a pure delight to be back with you today. Um, yeah, I'm thrilled. Thrilled to be here. <clears throat> I'm a little sick, so bear with me as I sniffle and maybe cough through this. Um, I'm realizing in the midst of this conversation of reimagining heaven and hell that this is incredibly delicate. And this conversation is... <clears throat> it's just so delicate because so many people hold so many different opinions of this idea of heaven and hell that my goal in today's conversation is to not to um, alienate anyone, alienate anyone or fire anyone up. My my only goal is to ask some questions and make an observation at the end. Um, So if you could do that with me and just um, hear me out in the midst of this conversation about salvation um, and how and when is someone saved, I'd really appreciate it. Um, So yeah, let's do this. Uh, so when I think back on my my childhood, I think back to this one moment uh, when I was like 12 or 13 years old, and I went to a local vacation Bible school. Uh, my dad's friend was hosting it in the neighborhood, and so I went because my dad wanted me to go, and all good. I went and uh, hung out for the week, and at the end of the week, they gave like the classic like altar call, you know, like if you want to give your life to Jesus or you want to be a Christ follower or, you know, all you do is pray this prayer. And so you pray the prayer and then actually they had everyone come forward and publicly declare that they were now a Christ follower. A little weird as I look back on it, but you know what? Guess what I did? I walked forward, bent the knee at the altar and publicly declared to everyone that I gave my life to Jesus. And so I went home later that day. It was a Friday and obviously my dad's friend called my dad and um, very excited, the both of them, that I was now a Christian and a part of um, their belief system, and, and my my eternity was secured in heaven with God, and I was on this new journey of life, and my dad pulled me aside, and he's like, I just want to say I'm really proud of you for the decision you made today. I was like, oh, okay, so, you know, your friend told you, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I just want to say I'm really proud of you, and good job, and, you know, this is a really good decision that you've made, and I said, okay, cool. Um, I remember walking away from that conversation with my father thinking to myself, and I mean this not even sarcastically, I mean, I, I walked away thinking, okay, so it's like the fourth time you commit your life to Jesus that it sticks and people congratulate you. Cool. So Because at that time, it was probably like the fourth time that I'd made this decision. And what's crazy is even after that decision was made, I'd do it plenty more times, you know? I don't even know how many times I rededicated my life to God because whether it was a particularly long week of sinning or just felt like it never actually stuck, like I I had to continue to um, give my life to Jesus and pray this prayer until thankfully someone down the road told me like, no, you're good, you did it once, you're fine. I was like, okay, cool. Um, I also remember this one moment when I was a young teenager, we were at our summer camp called Super Summer, and my sister was there that year, and my sister was kind of the black sheep of the family. She had some rough friend dynamics and um, made some poor choices early on in life, and I remember um, when the time came at camp for them to do like the, the you know, the salvation message and the altar call and whatever all that is, um, I remember looking around because I'm that guy. I like looking around and seeing who's in and who's out, who's a part of the club and who's not. I've always done it, which is, you know, was even easier when I became a pastor because I just got to then know. But I was looking around, I saw my sister raise her hand one night. And I remember just minutes later, I was like weeping in the arms of my friend and counselor, Sean, because um, there was this part of me that was really like happy, just tears of joy because my sister was in. 
she was good. She was, she gave her life to God and she was going to be okay. And she was going to go to heaven and, and it was all okay. Like for this one singular moment of my, this, this joy I had that my sister was going to be okay. And, and you know, this, this salvation stuff, as I, as I started to become a pastor got kind of weird for me because I started asking a lot of questions about it and a lot of things started to, um, pop up in my head. And so, um, one of the things I, I never did was I never gave like an altar call at, you, at my youth group when I was a youth pastor because I didn't feel comfortable necessarily like putting someone on the spot to like put their life in, in God in one singular moment. And so what I always told my students was, hey, if you're interested in following Jesus, let's have a conversation about it. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to me. And it's not till I reflect back on it much later in life that I'm like, oh my gosh, I was literally allowing people to create whatever narrative they wanted about salvation. Like rather than me being the one who kind of controlled the narrative from the, from the front and really being precise with what I wanted to say, I let just a ton of adults just go at it and, and create this narrative for students of like what salvation is. And, and so all these questions about salvation started to like really, really mess with me. Um, questions like, um, who does the saving? Is it God or is it Jesus? Because I, I know they're both God, but there's also this conversation in Christianity where like they're also separate. And so is it is it God? Is it Jesus doing the saving? Because the narrative in the Old Testament, there's a God who loves the world and creates Israel to go be a blessing to the world. But these people named Israel, named Israel have to do these things called blood sacrifices um, to atone for their sins. And, and um, so is it God doing the saving? But then God sent Jesus, his only son, to go to the earth to save man from their sins. And so who is it? Is it God or is it Jesus doing the saving? Um, and maybe that's a trivial question, but it's still a question like which one is doing the saving? And and um, an, another weird question tied to that is why blood sacrifice? Why is it that we need a blood sacrifice? Like in the Old Testament, it's all about blood sacrifice. In the New Testament, it's more about blood sacrifice. But in the narrative of 2018, blood sacrifice doesn't mean a lot to us. Like the narrative would make more sense if Jesus was like forgiving people of their sins that were tied to student debt and mortgages, right? Like that narrative would make more sense to us, but no, it's this narrative of blood sacrifice and we don't really do that. So how is this narrative hanging on for 2000 years as we've let go of blood sacrifice? Because what does that actually mean that blood was shed for our sins? You know, and then there's other questions I have, like, there's other questions like, you know, we've heard this conversation before of like, um, uh, you know, do, do we choose God or does God choose us? There's kind of this classic like Calvinist or Arminianist, you know, Arminian, Arminianism conversation of like, do we choose God or does God choose us? Because if God chooses us, that means he's got a set list of people he's picked, right? He's got a set list of people and, and um, they're in and the rest are out. And I really hope I'm one of the people who's on the inside because I'm not, if I'm not, what am I doing spending all my time on this Christianity stuff? And if it's free will and anyone can choose God, why don't I just live my life however I want and then do the saving thing, picking God when it's convenient for me? Because there's honestly this story in the gospels where this guy on the cross next to Jesus and he's dying and Jesus is like, today you'll be with me in paradise. And it's like, so he got to live his whole life and he's on a cross. So he's a criminal. And at the end of his life, he got to find salvation. That seems a little unfair. But then I've heard other people say too, that this idea of God's sovereignty, God choosing us and free will is like a train track where both need to coexist in order to be saved. 
And so if those need to coexist in order to be saved, then it seems like it's like a terms and agreements contract like you make with your cell phone carrier where you better click the right box. Like God offers it to you and you come back with the right um, uh, yes. You pray the right prayer just right so that, you know, the terms and agreements match up on both sides and you don't want to violate the contract. So you got to pray the prayer just right and say amen just right or else you violated the terms and contracts. Again, I don't mean to trivialize this, but this is the analogy that pops in my head as we talk about all these things. And then there's more questions like what happened with all the people before Jesus, like all the people who were ever on the earth before Jesus, do they just get a free pass or are they just screwed? Like, and if they just get a free pass before Jesus, why don't we just get a free pass after Jesus? And, and, and on top of that, like what happens to all the people who never hear about Jesus? Like what about the people who are maybe isolated in the world that never hear the name Jesus? And so is, is does God reveal himself to them in some other capacity? And so they call him God and so it magically works? And, and, and I don't know. Um, here's another question for you. What happens to someone who puts their faith in God at one time, right? But then what if they step away from their faith system? Because that's kind of where I'm at. At one time, I gave my life to this idea of Jesus and God, and I would say at this point, I very much have stepped away from it, that I no longer would necessarily overtly call myself a Christian. And so what happens? Like, was I not really saved in the first place, or was I, and I'm still, like, in the club somehow? And what happens if I change my mind? What happened if I've just strayed from the path and I decide to go back? Do I go back awkwardly and be like, hey— you know, this was a weird relationship. It wasn't you. It was me, God. Like, please take me back. Like some like weird dating relationship. <clears throat> and again, these are all the questions that I had in my head. And there's plenty more. There's so many questions about this idea of salvation and when it happens and how it happens. And and for me, it all was very, very convoluted. And there, there just seemed to be a lot of questions around it. So when I back up and look at me being a, a youth pastor and I'm like, I'm putting, I'm putting this entire conversation in the, in the hands of multiple different people and there's all these questions swirling around. Am I just creating this petri dish of opinions and ideas of how someone actually gets saved? And, and my honest answer to all of those questions is I don't know. I don't know. Because I think ultimately, at the end of the day, I can cherry pick any number of verses to make any of those questions make sense and make reasonable sense. And what's crazy is even those questions that oppose one another and the questions that are um, almost opposite of each other, I think plenty of people have tried forever to find the right scripture and, and ideas to back some of those ideas up that, that makes the most sense to them. And I'm not saying that's bad. Again, this is where this becomes a delicate conversation because I don't want to trivialize um, where people believe they go when they die because that's a loaded conversation that offers some people a lot of hope. But my ultimate answer for you today is I don't know when and how someone is saved. I don't even know if people get saved. I don't I don't know with where I'm at right now. I thought I did it one time, but at this point I'm just talking to you and saying I don't know when and how someone is saved and I'm sorry. I wish I wish I had an answer for you. But all I have is a lot of questions. A lot of stinking questions about this idea of salvation and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And and I'm really sorry I don't have something more substantial for you. 
in the midst of all those questions I just asked. So while I don't have answers to any of those questions, I do have an observation I'd like to make today and to hopefully bring us to a place of thought and reflection. There seems to be this story arc and narrative in the scriptures. And one that goes, there's a God who created everything. He's at the the front of all creation. And he creates the universe and the earth and the people on it and the animals in it. And, and this God really cares about its creation. It cares about the things that it creates. And then it, um, it, it goes out of its way to continually reinforce its love for this creation. But then it also asks its creation to go and take care of the world around it and the people around it, right? God looks at Israel and says, go be a blessing to the world. You know, and so they try and it doesn't work out that well because they have different requests and different hurdles and, and different things like that. And there's these, you know, they're still trying to stay right with God. And so ultimately what happens is the story arc goes that God arrives on earth in human form in the, in the person of Jesus. And so it's in Jesus that God walks around the earth and performs miracles and provides amazing teachings and and creates this new way of thinking and religion and thought for people to follow. And it culminates with this person named Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And, And then this Jesus is resurrected from the dead and ascends to heaven. But before he ascends to heaven, he looks at the people around him, the men and women around him, and says, go and do what I have done, but actually go do even better stuff than I have done. I just saved the world. Now you go do even better things. And he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. And um, through a series of events, we go apparently 2,000 years later, and here we are in this thing called Christianity, where God has given us the reins Um of the story arc to go do as he has done fascinating story arc. And actually it's, it's really cool. And there's just this really interesting narrative and how that happens. But I find that as I've gone back and wrestled with this idea of salvation, there's, there's one guy that has really helped shape my thoughts of late around this idea of salvation. Because if the idea of salvation is that God loves his loves, loves the creation that it made that, that, that it made, then then um, joins the creation and then hands the reins off to the creation to take over the work that that God has done. Um, It's just fascinating that there is a partnership there, not even a partnership, but really there's a a job handed off to us. And so as I went back and um, rethought about some of my ideas around salvation, I, I, stumbled across this old book that I had read a long time ago called The Wounded Healer. It's by a theologian named Henry Nowen. And so even in my current state of um, wonder and um, uh, loss of faith, if you will, question, doubt, all of that stuff, Henry Nowen is still this theologian who I very much respect because he seems so far ahead of his time. And um, he has passed away um, and so we don't have Henry Nouwen anymore, but we still have his writings and just a phenomenal thinker. But Henry Nouwen once said in The Wounded Healer, he said this about that story arc. He said, since God has become man, it is man who has the power to lead his fellow man to freedom. So the observation I make is there's a story arc of God caring for his creation, and then joining the creation, and then handing the reins off to the creation. 
and now and makes this observation as well that um you know i'm taking this from now it's not my observation it's now it's observation but since god has become man it's man who has the power to lead his fellow man to freedom and as i'm considering this intricate and delicate dance that, that the work has been handed off to us to look at the fellow man and interact with them in the way that god interacted with them there's a story that comes to mind and it's a story that is is really profound in christendom it's a really powerful story, and, and I, I really think good stories don't go away, and there's a reason it's such a powerful story. And so I'm going to read to you this story, um, and then I want to make another observation about it and leave you with your thoughts for the week. Now, you may have heard this story before, so listen up. And he said, he being Jesus, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey to a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And then he, the father, said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I come back to this story because it's a story that this guy named Jesus tells about the interaction between people. That there's these people in the story and it's people interacting, much like the narrative that God put out for us. That God, in a desire to save his creation, serve and save, he becomes man himself, joins the party teaches some things, leaves the party, and tells us to keep the party going. 
to keep doing the work that he is doing. And we see this story then being told as this interaction between people, right? Because what Nowen said is, since man, since God has become man, it's man who has the power to lead his fellow man to freedom. And in this story, the story is about people interacting, human beings. And every time I've heard this story talked about, every single time in every Christian circle, the only thing I ever hear is that we're either the younger son or the older son. We only fall into one of two categories. We're either the son who's so far off and lost, who's squandered everything and returns home to be saved, or we're the older son who's entitled and embittered by the younger son. Right? I mean, I mean, the story from a salvation lens makes sense. Like, one son wanders off and eventually returns. Like, he was home, he's lost, and he's found again. The older brother's been there the whole time. And I think we've heard every analogy we could or we can about how we are one of the two sons. But when I look at this narrative arc that I think that I think the Bible points to, and I think that Nowen points to, that this is between people interacting, how come we never... How come we never put ourselves in the shoes of the Father? That if the narrative goes such that God became man, did his work, and then handed the job off to other men and said things like, continue my word, you know, do as I have done, and in fact, do better things, how come we don't ever assume the role of the Father? Are we too scared? Are we worried we can't be like God? Because God seems to think we can be like God. Henry Nowen, in his book, The Wounded Healer, goes on, and he says this. He says, Perhaps the main task of the minister is to prevent people from suffering for the wrong reasons. Many people suffer because of the false supposition on which they have based their lives. That supposition is that there should be no fear or loneliness, no confusion or doubt. But these sufferings can only be dealt with creatively when they are understood as wounds integral to our human condition. Therefore, ministry is a very confronting service. It does not allow people to live with illusions of immortality and wholeness. It keeps reminding others that they are mortal and broken, but also with that recognition of this condition— Liberation starts. The observation I have to make today is, what if we're in a position to be the father? To be in a situation, in a place, in a space where we look at the people around us on the spectrum, the people who are the younger son and the people who are the older son, and we look at them and we say, I see you. I see your condition your condition of fear and loneliness, confusion and doubt, and it's okay to be there and I still love you and because I'm the Father, I will receive you with open arms and with love and with dignity and with grace. What if, what if this story arc puts us in a position of the Father? that we would examine the people around us and simply say, I see you and you are loved. That the people like the younger brother who have wandered so far off the path and it doesn't matter how far they wander, they're always welcome home to our embrace. 
And we look at the people like the older, older brother who are experiencing the most messy emotions of frustration and bitterness and anger and entitlement. That we look at them just the same and say, you are so welcome in this space and I see you and I get it and I love you. Because I'm wondering if this conversation of salvation with all of its complex questions and ideas is something that, that is too big for us to wrestle with at one time. That it's so many questions and ideas that we can't just sit here and piece through all of them and make it make sense. Because like I said, we can cherry pick scripture to make it so we answer all of those questions within a certain, I guess, agenda. But what we don't examine is this unique story about human beings interacting where where we would look at each other as lonely, broken, messy, fearful, insecure, confused, doubtful, and say, that's okay. I see you, and I love you, and I embrace you. Ultimately, this is where this conversation of salvation has brought me. Where are the places and spaces that you get to insert yourself into as the father? Where do you have the margin and the ability to be in certain places and spaces to look at the people around you who are the younger son and the older son and you simply see them and embrace them? That you see the younger son from far off and you sprint towards them to wrap them up in your arms and say, I'm so glad you're here and I see your broken state and it's okay. But because you're back, we're going to celebrate. And you go outside the party to the older son and you say, I know, I know this hurts. And I know you're mad and you're frustrated, but please come to the party because you've always been loved by me. Where are the places and spaces in your life that you get to be the father right now? That instead of a conversation about saving people from somewhere, that the conversation of saving people from somewhere to somewhere, let, let's table that conversation for a minute and just ask the question, where do you get to be the father right now? The father who wraps up the broken and the messy around you and says, I see you, I love you, I embrace you. And guess what? All that broken messiness, all the recognition of that condition, that is where liberation truly starts for us. I, I really hope you take some time to reflect and think on what places and spaces you're allowed to insert yourself into and be the father. To love the broken and lost sons and daughters around you. To wrap them up. To acknowledge the emotions are real. And to tell them you love them. Because I wonder if that's the task that we've been given. I sure do love you guys. Thank you so much for giving me a place and a space to wrestle through this crazy thing called life. I really love you guys. Hope you have a good week, and I'll talk at you another time.